So we're in a series that we are talking about four life-changing truths about who God is and convinced that if we were to embrace these four life-changing truths about who God is, that it would help us not only in our unbelief for those that don't know Christ as their personal Savior, but also for those that do know Christ as their personal Savior, it would begin to address now, these aren't the four truths that are exhaustive about who God is, but these are four major ones, and we would begin to, if we began to believe them and began to speak truth or speak these two in our life every day, and then not only that, but then really believe it, it would begin to alter all these things that, um, that we do against who God is as a person. And so two Sundays ago, we talked about how God is great, not like, you know, something is great, um, but we're saying God is great in the sense that, remember we talked about this spatial metaphor that the Bible uses, that he can hold the whole universe in his hand. So this is the greatness that we're talking about, who God is. And so if we begin to believe that this God who holds the universe in his hand, if we believe that he is great in that way, then what we're saying is that we don't need to be in control. When we are in control, or we strive to be in control, it just doesn't make sense, right? We use that scale where when we elevate God, then what becomes less, and it's us. If we elevate us, then what becomes less, and it's God. And so wherever that scale goes, that's where we're going to go. And we're saying if we believe that God is great and we elevate him up here, then we don't need to be in control because God is in control, and it just makes sense to me. Because if I'm the one who's in control and I'm a finite being and I am flawed and I'm full of sin, then I'm going to make very selfish decisions. In fact, everyone that I make is going to be selfish. But if I'm elevating God and I believe that God is great and I'm believing and telling that truth to me and I really believe and I'm living it, then, then I can release that control from here and give it to God and trust in the almighty being who holds the universe in his hand. And his love, and his love, and his just, and his wise, and all these other truths. So that's the first one. The second one, we said that God is glorious. In the sense that when we see something on like a sunset or a sunrise or the fall colors, or the other Sunday when it started to snow, I mean it was beautiful. We didn't like it, but it was beautiful, right? When we see a newborn baby or Anything else that just amazes us, you know, God designed that, who created that, and so he is infinitely more than any of that. So we're saying that God is glorious, and so that we don't have to fear others, that God is glorious in the sense that, that God loves me, that God approves me. He's put that stamp of approval on my life. If I say yes to him, then I'm an adopted son, I'm an adopted daughter, and he's saying, I'm not, I'm going to love you. This is the most I'm going to love you. So there's nothing that you can do. You can't earn any more of my love. It's been given to you. Neither can you take it away, right? There's nothing that you can do that's going to make me love you less. And so that love is there. It's, it's incredible. So we're basing off God is great. Now we're going to God is glorious. I have his approval. So now I don't have to fear man and that's what we do we struggle with that we struggle with putting the weight of others opinions others words others actions 
uh, far above God. And so what we looked at, we used that mouse trap, and this is the trap that we live in, and we just get trapped. When we think we're free, we're not really, and so we're trapped. And so we need to free ourselves from that trap. We need to tell ourselves that God is glorious, that we fear God, that we fear his opinion or his opinion, um, his approval of us, his love for us, the fact that he's glorious far outweighs any opinion of our fellow man. And when we believe that, then we're freed from that trap and now we're free to then live. We're free to live in that, in that love. And it frees us to love the way that God wants us to love. And so that was number two. Number three today is we're going to look at, I'm not just this too high, that God is good. Um, so that we, do not have to, we, that we do not have to look elsewhere. What does following Christ look like for you? For those who have said yes to him, an adopted son, an adopted daughter, what does following Christ look like for you? I want you to think about that quickly. What does it feel like? I think if we're honest, it probably feels a little bit like it's drudgery and it's duty, that I have to do this. I have to do certain things. There's this list of things that I have to do. And if I'm going to be really honest, it can be kind of a, kind of like having a, a ball or a, a ball attached to a chain around our ankle, whatever it might be. It's drudgery. I want us to understand that the overwhelming portrait that Jesus, um, of the overall following Jesus in the Bible, is not that. It's not drudgery, it's not duty, but rather it's a life that its fuel is joy. Because Jesus talks about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that there's this man who is walking and he goes and he sees, and he's walking in this field and he sees this treasure. And he so values that treasure that what he does, scripture says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, that in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to go buy that field so he can have that treasure. And so God does not just care about our actions, but he also cares about our heart motives, our desires. Here's a truth. We always do what we want to do. Right? We always do what we want to do. And did you ever stop to ask yourself why you do what you do? What is the motivation behind what you do? I gave this illustration uh, a while ago, but do you remember, um, for some, I'm going to say that following Jesus is like when you're driving in a car, and my wife just commented this morning that I was driving too fast, and she says, didn't Jesus like convict you? And I'm not even going to answer what I said. 
But following Jesus for some feels like when we're driving on the road and we're going too fast or we're not obeying whatever laws are out there to drive and, and we're feeling pretty good. And then all of a sudden a patrolman comes up behind us and I don't know about you, but I just do not like when a patrolman follows me, you know, from wherever I'm going for three or four miles, and it just feels like, ah, why are you doing this? Go ahead and just pass me or turn around or whatever it might be. But it feels like when I'm following Christ, it feels like I'm driving and, wait a minute, I'm driving and the patrolman is right behind me and he's just following me. See, the patrolman doesn't care if I'm happy about obeying the speed limit. That is all he cares about, is you being obedient to that. He doesn't care about whether you're happy or not doing that. And that, for a lot of us, is like what it is to follow Christ. We think that, well, it's all about just being obedient, and it's a sense of, oh, I've got to do this. Instead of this joy that's there, because of what God has done, because of what Jesus Christ has done, I now have him, and now I get to love him back by being obedient, by being someone who loves others and loves Jesus. Psalm 34, 8 says this in the book of Psalms. It says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 100, verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Now, I'm guessing that there's a lot of us that have never really experienced true freedom from sin because we have tried to conquer that, trying to get that out of our life, trying to um, remove ourselves from that, by simply just trying to uh, use brute force to get it out of our life. And we try to change our outward actions rather than right, changing our hearts, rather than changing what's really behind it. It's like you pull a dandelion, and I don't know if you've ever done this or not, but you pull it and you don't get the roots and then it just keeps coming back. And so we get the outward part, but we don't get the root. And, and according to Scripture, if we've not truly tasted, if we've not truly seen that God is good, that he is all-satisfying, then if that's not happening in our life, then what's going to take its place is that these momentary fleeting pleasures of sin in our life are going to take over. And scripture says that these momentary pleasures of sin um, will rot. They will um, be destroyed. We see that in Matthew 6, verse 19. What I want you to do is I want you to take out a piece of paper. Hopefully, if you have your handout, you can use that. Get a pen, I want you to do that. Find a pen, find a piece of paper. If you need a handout, um, Eli and somebody back there will um, give it to you. But I want you to, um, you're gonna do a little drawing this morning, okay? 
So this is what I want you to do. I want you to draw um, on your right side uh, a rock formation. Draw on the right side a rock formation, and I want you to draw then, imagine you have a rock formation over here, and then you have kind of like, just draw some water, so there's some ocean. Okay? You got that? Rock formation, ocean, you can draw a sun on the left-hand side and some birds going. Make it however pretty you want to make it. Then I want you to draw a ship. Hmm. With a mast. Okay, so a ship. You're just going to go draw. And then just a mast. Okay? Uh, you can draw a sail on there if you want. All right, so I want you to, to imagine there's this story, this Greek mythology story about Ulysses and Jason, and it, um, Ulysses is taking this adventure, and so I want you to um, draw uh, whatever you envision Ulysses to look like, okay, he's just standing in the boat, so Ulysses is standing, just draw a person in the boat, Ulysses then is standing in this boat, and he has some men with him. You don't need to draw the men. And he's going to go by this infamous island, which is represented by the rocks. And I want you to draw notes on the rocks, above the rocks or on the rocks, however it is. Music notes, exactly. <laughs> All right, no. Music, musical notes. All right, like they're just singing. So on these rocks, it's called in this Greek mythology story, is that Ulysses is taking his band of merry men and they're going by what is called the infamous rock of sirens. And what, the, and, um, what is being said about this is that when you go past this, ships will go past this, is that these creatures on these rocks will sing. And they're called sirens, and they will sing, or they'll have some kind of song. And when the ship goes by, they really can't see what's going on, but it sounds incredibly, incredibly beautiful. And so they will steer their ship to this sound, and what happens then is their ship crashes against the rocks because they can't see where they're going. They're just listening to this beauty. They're lured by this sound, and then... When they crash, and this is going to be morbid, but these sirens will come and devour them. They're eaten. They're dead. So don't draw that. But I'm just saying that's what happens, right? So Ulysses knew that. So this is what... <laughs> Sorry. So Ulysses knew that. Don't draw death and destruction. Ulysses knew that. So this is what he did. He said, all right, men... He, I want you to put, he fashioned, um, I think it was uh, uh, clay or something to put in their ears so they wouldn't hear the sound. But he said, but I want you to do to me is I want you to um, strap me to the mast and I don't want the things in my ear because I want to hear the, sound, the song. And so I want you to strap me to the mast so that when I hear it, I can't go to the sound. And so that's exactly what happened. 
And so they passed the island, and um, the guys couldn't hear what was going on, but he could, and they made it through. But what he said was, is that even though my body did not go in my heart, I wanted to go. My soul wanted to go there. Jason, the other person in the story, um, contrasted to the story of Ulysses. So now your stick figure is Jason. And um, he had been warned, just like Ulysses had been warned, of this seductive siren song um, that was by this island. And so what Jason decided to do is he had met a man called Orpheus. And I want you to draw another man with, I don't know, do a guitar or a violin or a microphone, something. So you have, now you have Jason in the boat and you have Orpheus in the boat with a violin, a guitar, or a microphone of some sort. Orpheus was a musician of incredible talent, a lot like our musicians up here on stage. And so when he would begin to play or sing, whatever it was, it had a very enchanting effect on those who listened. In other words, there was not really a more lovely or a beautiful sound in all the world. This is how the story goes in Greek mythology. So when the time came, Jason Rather than putting earplugs in his ears and his guy's ears or, or asked, to be, asked to be tied to the mask, what he did is he brought Orpheus with him because he really had no illusion of the strength of his will. He knew that he would succumb to the song of that siren. And when he got to that point, he ordered Orpheus to begin to play. And what we see in this story is that the sound of sirens didn't stand a chance against the music that this Orpheus guy was playing in Jason's ear. And he and his crew overcame temptation and they passed the island. The only way that we can defeat pleasure is with pleasure, if that makes sense. What we need to do is we tend to want to um, take care of the outside part of our sin and not do anything about the inside. But the only way that you're going to be able to defeat pleasure, which is really what we're doing, is we're finding momentary pleasure in the things that are around us. Is The only way we're being able to do that is by doing what Jason did and finding something more pleasing than what we were first given to. And what I'm going to lay out to you this morning is that Jesus, that God, is this most pleasing thing in our life. And so, um, listen to this quote from... Um, Sam Storm, who wrote this book, Developing a Passion for the Beauty of God. He says, for many people, Christianity is a tedious and ultimately unsatisfying aversion to temptations they would much prefer to indulge. Nothing depresses me more than to think of expending my one life on earth, merely suppressing my deepest desires, always acting contrary to what my soul continues to crave, 
but there's little hope of it being otherwise so long as I seek satisfaction in something other than God. And so what we're saying this morning is that God is good. He is the all-satisfying thing in our life so that we don't need to look for satisfaction anywhere else. When we begin to believe, when we begin to tell ourselves, when we begin to again believe that God is good, that he is the most all-satisfying thing, person in my life, then I don't need to look for satisfaction anywhere else. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And whether or not we want to admit it, and no matter how conscious we are of it, our lives are spent in the pursuit of pleasure. That's just how God wired us. And this is not bad in and of itself, as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, but then Genesis 3 happens. And we begin to see Adam and Eve choosing something else, believing that God is not the all-satisfying thing in their life, and they do something different. And they began to look for pleasure in something else. And we begin to believe that anything other than God looks better, whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's sex, whether it's recognition, whether it's working in the church, whether it's doing good things, or whatever it might be. Because when we do that, we believe that this thing that we're following will give us what we're looking for. We believe that at the root of it, that these things are better than God in our life. I mean, have you ever thought of, in terms of sinning, or really in terms of, um, have you thought of sin in terms of believing um, that God isn't good enough? And that's really what we're saying. That when I am going against who God is, what I'm really saying is that, God, I don't believe that you're good enough. I don't believe that you are the all-satisfying person in my life. I need to look to something else for that. You see, the invitation of the Bible, this, this life that Jesus lived, is not drudgery. It's not um, duty It's not this dreary abstinence from things. It's a call to find in God that which truly satisfied. It's believing that we find this lasting fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, identity in knowing God and and nothing else. It's, It's understanding that whatever sin offers, God offers more because God offers himself. And I think that we miss that. We know that here, but we don't know it here in our heart. See, God isn't just good. He's better than anything. And he's the true source of all joy in our life. Another problem is that we begin to think only in moments. In the moment, we think that this pleasure of sin is real and the joy of God is not so much anymore or it's distant. But really in truth, it's the other way around. 
Every joy we experience is just a shadow of the source of all joy, which is God. Because sin distorts. Sin distorts what is true. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 4. And there's this story, a well-known story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And in this story, Jesus is tired and he's walking and he's stopping and he wants a drink of water. And I think you know this story well. And he meets the Samaritan woman and he asks her for a drink of water. And she says, how does this come about that a Jew is asking a Samaritan woman to, for a drink of water? And, and then he turns around and goes, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then she says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Still thinking the physical part. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it for himself as, it, as did also his sons and his livestock? And this is verse 13. And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. So now he shifts from this dialogue between water and the physical water and what he's talking about, this living water that can only come from God himself. And he shifts it now um, because she wants this water to, he says, go and call, call your husband and come back. And she says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What, have you just, what you have just said is quite true. And sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Again, she shifts. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you, Jesus, claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So then Jesus talks about what true worship is, that worship is that um, we are to worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers are must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know this Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus said to her this line, I, the one speaking to you, am he. She goes away, tells all of her friends that she's met this man who knows all about her. And what's interesting to me is that in verse 39, uh, John goes on to say that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. You see, Jesus is talking about, he turns this request from the Samaritan woman into an offer of this living water. And this living water is God himself, which is communicated to you and I through the Holy Spirit. And, and we are called to look beyond this present moment to eternity. See, we think in moments, we think now, and what God is saying, I want you to think beyond the moment. I want you to think beyond the moment to eternity. I mean, Moses realized that when he spurned a life to live with Pharaoh and all the riches to be, to turn and live his life with his um, fellow brothers and sisters. We see that in Hebrews um, 
Hebrews 11. In Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah calls people who, who are not following in this way that many people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewed cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. As a result, they go after other gods to their own harm and to their own shame. And so our double sin, in essence, is this, is rejecting the truth of God, his goodness. And then second, placing our affections elsewhere into something else, thinking that it's going to satisfy us and take care of that ache and that hole and that urge that we know is missing in our heart. And so we can't simply change by changing our behavior. We need God to change us by renewing our hearts and by giving us new desires. So we always do what we want to do. And so it stands to reason then that we need to, to look inside. If we truly want to change, then we need to look inside and begin to change that new desire. Like Jason had Orpheus in that new beautiful song overwhelmed him more than the song of the sirens. And if we want to truly change, then we need to begin to look to God, who is that all-satisfying being in our life, and allow that to come in, and allow that to then begin to change our actions. So let his love for you as an adopted son, as adopted daughter, win your love. And then let that kind of love or that, that love replace all your other affections. And it's not going to be an instantaneous thing. For some, it might be on certain things, but for most of us, it's not. It's going to be a progressive thing that we're always going to fight, that, that we're always going to have this battle in our life. And I want to understand that this temporary satisfaction is real. It is real. I mean, and, and for some, it's good. But it's not forever, and it's not lasting. It's kind of like a Snickers bar. One thing you learn about me is that I love Pepsi. Coke's okay. And I like tacos. And I like Snickers. What's the saying for Snickers? See, I don't think that's true. If it's true, then I wouldn't want another one the next day. So it's true on the one hand that Snickers satisfies this momentary desire that I have for caramel, nougat, and milk chocolate and peanuts. I love that combination. Snickers satisfies that immediate desire for that, but then once it's done and some time has passed, depending on how much work I've done and how much work I haven't done, I might want something 30 minutes later, or I might want something six hours later, or I might want one again the day later, but then it just keeps perpetuating itself in my life. Everything else that is not God is like a Snickers bar. In one sense, it can satisfy. 
But in another sense, it can't because it's not going to satisfy forever and ever and ever and ever. Because, see, the church is called. You and I make up the church, and we're called to show the world that we really enjoy life, that it's not a life of drudgery. It's not a life of duty. It's not a life of, a lot of it's not a life of, I have to do this. I have to go to church, or I have to be obedient, or I have to do this. Oh, man, living my life as a Christian is so dull. I mean, when we look at Jesus' life, what did he do? I mean, he brought life to everything that he did. He brought life to the party. The party was better when Jesus came and was a part of it. And when you have Christ in your life, when you have the Holy Spirit in your life, then that should be true of you as well. And so we have this mission of not only being on mission, but we have this mission of joy that we're saying that I love you, God, and you are more satisfying than anything else in my life. And because of that, I'm going to live my life in joy. Even through the hardships, even through sickness, even through people making fun of me, or whatever it is, not being wealthy enough or not having enough friends or whatever it might be that's going on in your life. Scripture says that eternity is not going to be boring. That little drawing, I don't know how well you did that, but I hope that reminds you that we can only defeat pleasure with pleasure. And it's really this expulsive power of a new affection. And the only new affection that's eternal and lasting is God. And I pray that we will not have a Snickers mentality when it comes to life. And this is the lies that we begin to believe. Is that God can, it may save, but he can't satisfy. This is a lie that we really, that we're believing, that Satan wants you to believe. That the lie, or that God may save, but we, or that he can't satisfy. Well, okay, Jesus' death is good for later, but not now. I am incomplete if I am having to sacrifice pleasant pleasure. These are the lies that we begin to believe in our life. Others are only good as the comfort they bring me. This is having a Snickers mentality. And we begin to then, when we begin to live out those lies in our life, we begin to then experience um, finding this uh, satisfaction in things around us. And it could be good things. Snickers satisfies, just for a moment. Only God can satisfy for eternity. See, God is good. So that I don't have to, to look anywhere else or for anything else or anybody else to find satisfaction.